Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Welcome to this episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I am Kyle Brost, and today we have on Yuri Kruman, who's going to tell us some really incredible stories. He has had such a fascinating journey in life, um, going through multiple careers, having multiple challenges, and yet always coming through on the other side and uh, reaching a point now where he's been featured in numerous publications and worked with some phenomenal organizations. So we're really looking forward to having a conversation with Yuri today. Yuri, do you mind uh, just kind of starting us out and elaborating a bit on who you are? Absolutely, Kyle. First of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's a really pleasure to have a conversation with you today. Absolutely. To give you a bit of a perspective on what I do, um, it's a mix of things. On one hand, I consult Fortune 500 companies and uh, startups on HR, hiring, uh, people, culture, and customer experience, especially as it relates to millennials and millennial executives and uh, leaders. And on the other side, I also do a lot of one-on-one work with uh, those same millennial executives, uh, usually coming out of the Fortune 500, let's say director, VP level. And uh, those people sometimes want to leave the corporate world and go to startups. But often they don't really know what's their life mission, what are they meant to do, or how to get to where they need to go. And that's that's where I come in. Uh, very nice. And, and I, uh, I've seen that as well, that same thing where people, you know, it doesn't really matter what career you end up in. There's always people that are still searching for that path. So I'm completely yeah. on board there. Cool. And um, I also, I just want to mention, um, the other part of what I do is advising early stage startups on PR, media, customer experience, and pretty much everything else. Because uh, as it happens in my startup career, I've, I've pretty much done everything there is to do. Very cool. Well, so you have had a very interesting startup career. Um, do you want to kind of take us back to the beginning and, and tell us, you know, how that all started? <laughs> yeah, with pleasure. Uh, it's a funny story. Uh, I came to New York in 2004, right after college. And uh, the reason uh, that I came to New York was for a PhD program in neuroscience at NYU. And, um, you know, I'm in there a few months and I'm, I'm really starting to see that, you know, this is really not a great fit. But OK, I'm an immigrant. I need a grad degree. And my mom happens to be a neuroscience professor, and uh, here I am, right? And uh, what oh, do I do? I start my first company, and uh, the company was called uh, Juicy Jews. <laughs> what is this? Juicy uh, Jews? Juicy Jews. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I still have the T-shirt. I got I to hear about it. Yeah, this. I have the T-shirt. So it's, um, it was the first Jewish social network. Uh, it was based on... Uh, the first really uh, global group on Facebook, um, which was under the name Judah the Maccabee, who's the hero of Hanukkah. Of course, we're in in Hanukkah now. Yeah, yeah, just um, yesterday. Exactly. Happy Hanukkah. uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So I had uh, 15,000 Jewish kids uh, as friends on my profile, and I decided, you know what, let me create a social network. And um, so I built a website. I had guys um, in India build it and spent my savings and uh, you know it had a spike in traffic and it died but it really gave me the startup bug and that's kind of how I knew that I would always want to do my own business so so how did you go from uh, neuroscience to 
a social network. Um, what was that? I mean, how did that idea even come into your head? Well, we'll certainly circle back to this, but the the continuing theme in my life has always been around two things, two pillars, which is language and psychology. And so language is not just, okay, let me, let me go learn uh, French or Italian or what have you. It's more about, you know, being an immigrant, trying to have others, you know, Americans understand me. I grew up in Kentucky, so it's not exactly like being in New York where people are used to you know, internationals from all over the place. So I have to be understood as, um, you know, a, a new American. I have to make myself understood in a place that, you know, loves sports. I'm, you know, kind of a nerdy guy at that point. And uh, I'm really always trying to, you know, deliver the right message to the right audience. And that was, that's always been a theme and also throughout my career changes and so on. And the other part is psychology, right? Trying to understand who are these people that I'm addressing? How do they think? You know, what do they think about? What, what, do we, what message do I need to deliver to them in order to create opportunity to add value? That's always been a theme in my life. And that's, that's indeed, uh, you know, when I've come full circle as a coach and uh, advisor and, and, you know, all of those things, those, those are the two things that I teach others. Okay. So you and I actually share a common passion for psychology, my undergraduate degrees in psychology. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually did explore uh, some postgraduate work as well. Um, I didn't go that route similar to you, but so we have a a similarity there in terms of the psychology background. Surprises, I guess. Yeah. So, so you uh, you started this this uh, this social network Juicy Jews, um, which I can't get over the name, but <laughs> can I? <laughs> <laughs> so you started this. Uh, you said you had a kind of a spike in traffic, and then what happened? Well, basically, the sign up process was too long, and uh, you know, not having had any sort of product management background, or obviously, you know, not, also not being a coder. I really didn't understand how how to attract people and keep them on the site. So, you know, very basic kinds of things that I learned later when I did product management for a bit and, you know, I, I studied how others have done this. Back then it was just kind of a passion project, you know, I really I love bringing people together and that's that's why I tried it and you know, that's just how it goes. Nice. Um, well, so clearly you learned some things uh, in hindsight about that experience. What what happened next after after the spike and it kind of fell through? I assumed that you uh, you know closed up shop or you know moved on in some way. So what did that transition look like? Sure. So I was uh, in grad school in the PhD program for a year, and at that point it was you know really clear to myself and I think probably the people running the program that it's just not a good fit. I really need to be doing something else. So I left. And before then, I kind of had a you know, slightly depressive episode where I didn't show up to my lab for, for about a month. Okay. I guess that should have been uh, quite obvious that you know, I'm meant to be there. Anyways, <coughs> excuse me. I left and, um, you know, again, having this whole thing about being an immigrant, I need a grad degree. So I applied to law school. Like, uh, you know, oh, wow. every, every good uh, foolish boy. Um, and uh, in the year not even quite a year um, between leaving grad school and going to law school I worked as a paralegal right to get a kind of foot in the door in the legal industry to understand how things work you know I worked in uh, large law firms I worked at uh, Pfizer a couple others and you know everything seemed hunky-dory because of course having no clue what law school is like or what it's like to get a job 
so on and so forth. And I went through law school, you know, worked all the way through, worked, uh, interned at all kinds of different places. Uh, you know, one lady on Fifth Avenue who does legal consulting. Don't ask me what that is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. Great area. <laughs> um, you know, I worked for an insurance defense litigation firm. I worked for a hedge fund. And, uh, actually, when the entire financial system was on, you know, close to collapse. I happened to be in that hedge fund and I was like, whoa, that's really cool. I'm really learning so much in the middle of uh, all this information. And that kind of gave me a taste for finance. Okay. Well, so you didn't go right back into another business then after, uh, no, after Juicy Juice? No, sometimes you need to just, you know, eat a bit of crow um, and uh, learn, learn how things actually okay. work from those that have made things work. <laughs> and just so you know, I'm going to try to say juicy Jews as many times as I can in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I mean, so you're getting all of this incredible experience in a totally different field. I mean, law from neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And what is it teaching you through this experience? Well, in actually, perhaps it's not a coincidence, but there are quite a few lawyers that end up as entrepreneurs or working in finance or all kinds of different fields. And really, what I think is the greatest value of a law degree, I don't know if I would pay the quarter million for it again. I'm pretty certain I wouldn't, but the key is it, it gives you a certain confidence that you can find whatever information you need that you can argue through the other sides, your opponent's arguments, right? And be ready for whatever comes to you in a negotiation. And oh, yeah. in essence, a negotiation happens every single time you have a conversation with someone, right? It's just, that's just you know, sure. work. Sure. Interesting. And, and there's also these, you know, I would assume, but there's also kind of these internal negotiations that we have with ourselves, yep. right? where we're, we're kind of looking at something that we want or that we're trying to achieve, or we're looking at a challenging situation and we're trying to, you know, weigh the cost benefit and our options. And so I would, I would imagine that that ability to uh, weigh different factors and really find um, how they're going to impact your behavior would, would be a, a benefit as well. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, if nothing else, that kind of thought process where, <clears throat> Excuse me. You have to other, you have to argue the other side's argument for them, really in the highest sense. Yeah, that makes you very sharp. It makes you see around corners, and you know that's that's something incredibly useful in business, regardless of you know whether your skill set is heavy towards sales or product management or whatever. You know, you're always able to think through various scenarios. You can think about the various risks involved. And you can also go and research, let's say, how others have done this, right? If you look at case law, case law is exactly um, how this plays out, right? So um, a similar plaintiff and a similar defendant, uh, you know, took uh, their case to court and the decision by the jury or the judge was such and such for these particular reasons, the jurisdiction. And, you know, that, that really makes you able to categorize things in the right way and to slice them forwards, backwards, front, you know, and, and in all directions. And I think that kind of layering is something that I've always done, you know, long before I went to law school. And it, it, it's something that just helps me to find the answer in, let's say, three-dimensional space. We can call a business that. Okay, yeah. That's, that's the value. Interesting. So if... 
if you, if you were to think of kind of one tip around that, being able to slice or see across these dynamics, if you were to think of one tip you could give listeners, um, is there something you would recommend, some sort of action or habit that they could establish that would help them in that type of effort? Well, I have a maxim that um, I, I like to, um, you know, to tell people, which is very simple. Not only everything is negotiable, but if you don't ask, the answer is always no. So negotiate in, in every situation. It's not just because you have to pretend to be some kind of you know Middle Eastern uh, seller at a bazaar. Because for me, growing up, that was the scenario, right? My parents were academics, and everything was about formality and you know keeping up appearances. So everything related to selling and commerce was really seen as low and you know not not for us, right? And it took me a very long time to get over that not just fear of selling, but seeing things in that way that, you know, I'm, I'm putting myself low. And in fact, one of the things that pushed me in that direction was marrying uh, my wife who grew up in Morocco. And um, okay. you know, for, for people that grow up there, they have no choice. They have to negotiate everything. That's, that's just, you know, maybe it comes with the mother's milk, but in, in daily yeah. interactions, whether you're buying something, you know, you negotiate. If you, if you don't negotiate, then, the other side sees you as, as a fool and useless. So that starting point, you know, really changed my perspective because I went to Morocco and I just went to a bazaar and I'm like, you know what? I have nothing to lose. And I bargained and it felt amazing. And I'm like, you know what? Why don't I just do this in other things? It's to test my limits. It's to see how I can overcome my own barriers in, in my mind. And from that perspective, obviously, I've gone pretty far because now, now I teach um, a lot of my clients how to negotiate. I'm pretty good at it. Yeah. I, I love that. And it's so simple, right? We've all heard that, the the idea that if you don't ask, the answer is always no, but so few people actually do it. Um, we, My wife and I recently moved to Denver where I, I acquired a company this year and we were looking at places to, to rent in that process. And we found this place that was perfect for us, um, but it was a little on the high side mm -hmm. of, of pricing. And you know, we could have just assumed that they would be firm in their price, but you know, I kind of have that same maxim. Like it's not going to hurt to just ask. And so I said, Hey, would you take, and I offered them, you know, a few hundred dollars less per month. Uh, and the answer was, yeah, sure we would. And it was that simple, right? Like just asking the question and yet it, there was no risk to it. They all, the worst case would have been, they would have said, no, you know, our rent is firm. Here's what it is. Um, and what surprises me about that is actually, it just makes me think of sales because my, one of my former companies was an outside sales company and how many sales reps won't ask, won't actually ask for the close. Like they won't say, you know, are you ready to purchase or do you want to go ahead and sign? You know, they don't actually ask that very straightforward question. Well, if you don't ask it, you're always going to have like a maybe or a no. And so I, I love yeah. that. And I think that it really applies you know, individually, especially in a leadership capacity, yeah. the ability to simply ask for those things and negotiate yeah. those things. I think uh, I just want to, you know, one more thought that comes with this. What I teach all of my clients is also you need to approach whatever encounter, negotiation, conversation, whatever it is with an ownership mentality, right? It's not just about what's in it for me. That's, that's not what I mean by ownership mentality. <clears throat> what I mean is you need to really look at things from your perspective, right? When you are investing your time, you're investing your money, you're investing your resources in whatever relationship, whether that's 
in your career or with business partners or investors or potential employees, advisors, you name it, right? You need to really come from um, a place where you're clear on who you are, where you're going and what you need to get there, right? And actually that dovetails very neatly into my methodology, which um, first focuses on life mission, right? So when you're free of all the barriers that are in your mind and, you know, circumstances, whether that's uh, finances or, you know, your wife's not happy that you're running a business or it doesn't matter. When you're free of that, what problem do you choose to solve in your life, right? Meaning it could be anything. It could be, I don't know, uh, curing AIDS in Thailand or delivering drinking water to sub-Saharan Africans. Or, you know, it, it could be something as ridiculous maybe as helping old ladies cross the street. Whatever, right? If that's your thing, if that's your mission, then you have to follow it. The second piece is values. Values are about the things that really matter to you and other people, the people that you choose to spend time with. Because you should look for those same values. Maybe they're kind or generous or hilarious or brilliant or they empower you in the people that you work with, in the people that you do business with, the people that you employ, et cetera, et cetera, right? And you really need to understand those two things above everything else. So it's not just about what's in it for me, but how does this match with my life mission? How does this match with my values? The other two pillars are outcomes, uh, meaning what do you like to deliver to others? Is it uh, delight or niche knowledge or empowerment or something else? Not not deliverables. Okay. The last piece is role, meaning what what is your natural yeah. organic role yeah. in any situation or organization, not just at work, right? Are you the evangelist with a vision running around persuading people to invest and work with you, et cetera? Are you the you know niche expert in the Saudi economy, for example? Are you the person who is a caretaker? You empower others. Are you a no-nonsense operator, et cetera? So with those four pillars, it really helps you to be clear on who you are and by extension, your brand, your business, and the kinds of people that you want to attract to work with you, to invest in you, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's that alignment which really, really helps to have that ownership mentality in every encounter, conversation, et cetera. That's, that's what I think most people don't, don't quite see, and it's really critical. Yeah. You know, you said something early on in your methodology that really resonated with me. And, and, you know, I don't know that I'll quote it verbatim, but you said something about um, what problem are you trying to solve? Like choosing a bigger problem. And it hit me because so many people are trying to solve the everyday problems. That's where their attention is directed toward these kind of low level everyday problems of, you know, why am I so tired? Or, you know, how do I get another dollar? Or, you know, how do I... Uh, you know, eat a little bit healthier. It's these like kind of like low level problems, but the people that I work with who are really successful have selected bigger problems to try to solve that are not just the everyday kind of problems that everyone faces. They're these big kind of world type of problems that they're trying to solve. So it's almost like you can, you can tell where your attention is going to be directed by what what is or how big is the problem you're trying to solve? If it's the little everyday things, um, you know, that's where your attention is going to be directed. So you're going to accomplish little everyday things. But if you're trying to solve a big problem and these little everyday things don't factor in, then you direct your attention to that bigger, grander effort. 
So that, that resonated a lot with me, actually. Yeah, I think, um, yeah. And really, the other thing is, I think you're familiar with this uh, from sales. Most people don't have a buyer's mentality. They're always selling or actually very poorly selling themselves as opposed to coming to, again, that every conversation, encounter, et cetera, as a buyer, meaning I have time to invest. Maybe I don't have money. I have my resources, my network. Everybody has something to invest in a relationship or a business or whatever. But if they don't take that approach, that I need to do my due diligence on this person, my potential business partner, employee, whatever, and they just kind of go with the flow. Like, okay, we just need, we need bodies, right? We hear this, uh, we hear this saying a lot. We need bodies in there. Well, you're going to have bodies. You're not going to have minds if you pick the right yeah. people. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So getting back to your story, you, uh, you're in law school. Um, you've done, you know, a bunch of different jobs within the the law arena, and what what happens next? Well, so 2008 in the fall, as I mentioned, I'm in this uh, hedge fund, and <coughs> excuse me, basically, you know, everything goes south, and I'm like, all right, let's see where this goes. So by the time I graduate, the legal market is kind of dead and and dying, and in, in some ways, it hasn't really recovered since for various reasons, but. Um, I got a taste of what it's like to be in finance. So when I graduate and you know I don't have any any job lined up, anything like that, I actually you know went through a lot of uh, kind of very difficult times where I had to move back home from New York because I couldn't afford my rent. I didn't have a, a job and I didn't have much in savings. So after two months at home, you know, God bless my mom, but I just I couldn't I couldn't handle it anymore. It was, you know, well, wait, so <laughs> so you are out of law school, yeah. Um, and you move back home with your parents. Yeah, back home with my mom, and um, you know that's that's uh, that's a bit of a traumatic experience for someone who's you know in his late twenties already. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So late twenties. I mean, you you've been in a PhD program. You have a law degree, and you're still moving back in with your with your yeah, mom. Yeah, but a quarter million dollars in debt on my on my neck. <laughs> Only difference. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, gosh, I mean, what are you feeling at this point? I'm feeling pretty low. I mean, it's uh, there's no secret, right? Um, a lot of my friends kind of have disappeared, uh, and um, it's it's difficult. But bottom line is, after two months, I just I had enough, and I'm like, I have to be back there. That's by far the best place for me to find a job, an opportunity. That's where my network is. My friends are there. I have to get back. That's it. Okay, but so it took you it took you two months before you were able to make that that decision. Well, yeah, I mean it was it was pretty clear I would have to go back anyway. But I think after a certain point, you're like, look, I'm my own person. I, I you know I can't just sort of hang out hang out with my mom all the time. It's not a it's not a great place. Sure. So I got back uh, back to New York, sure. and I was staying between two friends' uh, couches basically for about five months. The irony is that I actually met my now wife then. <laughs> My, uh, I had a, a girlfriend, uh, you know, for about four and a half years, and we broke up. It was, you know, big heartbreak. And I'm staying between two couches. I'm having a, you know, kind of a project at a, at a hedge fund that I was able to get. And, you know, um, I, I kind of knew my wife already, but we just asked her on a date. Totally different from what I expected because she's like, you know, I'm from Morocco. Okay, never dated one of those. And uh, turns out she's French. She's an engineer. She was at uh, Columbia doing a, a master's at that point. And after two months, you know, during which she was away for five weeks, basically I kind of, you know, 
an apartment fell in our lap. I'm like, we're having drinks and uh, I get an email from a friend like, look, I'm getting married and uh, moving in you know, with my husband to be. I want to keep this apartment among friends. And it happened to be Columbia Housing. And if, if, you know, I don't know how, how well you know uh, kind of the New York mythology around apartments, but this is like hitting, this is like striking gold, basically. Okay. Okay. So we, we had, we lived in that apartment even, you know, uh, for I think, what, three, four years at least. Um, basically under the radar, paying under under market uh, prices and all that. And we really lucked out. But both of us needed a place to live. Uh, my wife uh, was staying uh, with a friend of hers also on the couch. So basically, in the <laughs> middle of this craziness, we just get this incredible, you know, basically gold. And we moved in quickly. I went to get a ring the same week and we got engaged. And then she's like, all right, but now I really have to take you like to my parents to Morocco. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so before we do the religious wedding, let me let me basically see how you stand up against the heat. And um, okay. I have to remember all the all the French I learned as a kid and it really served me well. You know, thank God things worked out. Wonderful. Nice. I was going to ask how you uh, appealed to this, you know, French Moroccan with an engineering degree while you're sleeping on a couch. But you kind of answered the question. So. Yeah, well, I learned to <laughs> I negotiate pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. love it. That is a big part of marriage, negotiation. Okay, so, so you move into the apartment. Um, you're doing a little bit of work uh, for a hedge fund. And where do things take so, you next? You know, there are breaks between projects. Um, and it's, it's very difficult because living in New York without savings, with all that you know, loan balance, uh, still around a quarter, a quarter million. And um, it's tough. It's very tough. You know, young and married and, um, you know, we had our first kid after a couple of years. And uh, I'm still in finance. I was uh, at Bank of America on a project, and uh, it was kind of like my first, my first big, uh, big salary. I made six figures. It was a big bank uh, position. I was assistant vice president. Blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> then, then the kid is born, and you know, basically right after the project ended. So I was, I was hanging out with with my little, uh, little kid for a few months, taking her to like you know, mommy and me and stuff like that, something with daddy and me. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different kind of paradigm because, um, you know, that's not really what I envisioned, obviously, going to law school, but sometimes that kind of process really makes you see things differently, makes you understand that, okay, this isn't my mission, you know, making wealthy people wealthier, nothing wrong with that, but just not my mission. And, um, eventually I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a health tech investor and, uh, he says, look, um, you know, I know you're not really a finance guy. You gave me some amazing ideas about healthcare a while back. I'm, I'm building a company, basically underwriting health insurance from a tech perspective. Oh my God, this is amazing. I've, I've really, I've wanted to do this for a while, but, you know, because circumstances. Uh, okay, so basically we got together and we started building this company. And I think you'll appreciate the name as well. It was called More Spinach. Kind of like Popeye. Yeah. Yeah. You know Popeye. More right? Spinach? <laughs> How funny. Are, are yeah, you the one coming yeah, up with all these me. names? <laughs> I'm a storyteller. So uh, bottom line is right. we, we went as far as we could without raising money. And I then, like it. You know, chicken and egg kind of situation. If you want to do health insurance, you want the licenses, you need five to 10 million just to talk to the commissioner. And uh, we just didn't have it. So, But I got into the startup world and eventually I worked for three other startups for one of them in finance and operations. I basically walked in off the street and 
know, did a job that was similar to the director of finance who had an MBA in finance. <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids, really. Not, not, a, not a great idea. Okay. But it was amazing. Even though I burned out, I really, my learning curve was oh, just man. through the roof. I, I had to, I had no choice. So, you know, from, I was working in a consulting company. So again, after another long break, um, I got lucky because the recruiter saw my resume. He was an entrepreneur himself and he kind of, you know, he saw the potential in me. So he gets me to this consulting company, healthcare, big data. And after a month, I get a call from, you know, this entrepreneur that I'm talking to for about a year and a half. He's like, come for lunch. Okay, sure. We're having lunch. And he's like, look, um, I know we talked about maybe you doing product management because that's kind of, you know, what you want to do. But I really need help in finance and operations. I'm like, look, man, you know my story. Sure, I right. worked in finance, but I'm not a right. finance guy. I don't have any accounting background, nothing. He's like, no, 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 I get it, but I really need help. And, um, you know, he also kind of told me, which should have been a red flag, that, like, I really want to push mm. my director of finance out of here. I'm like, okay. He's like, all right, bottom line is tomorrow morning we have a company retreat in Boston. I want you there. I want you to start here. I'm going to – I'm offering you, a, you know, a bump in pay and, like, here, just be the whatever. I'm like, okay, you know, let me let me take a day off and talk to my wife. But, like, okay, well. sure, this sounds amazing. That was a – yeah. So basically overnight, I got into this, you know, VC backed startup as a finance and operations guy. And, you know, basically the guy who was doing, uh, you know, the high level stuff, director of finance, he left for a month to okay. India. <laughs> so here I am running um, about a 50 person company um, in terms of finance and operations for a month, having zero experience. That was nuts. That is nuts. Talk about uh, doing payroll. Payroll, contracts, negotiation, all the legal stuff, plus all the finance stuff, investor relations documents. Crazy, crazy stuff. But I survived there as long as I could. And then, you know, just it wasn't it was not a good fit. You know, too much micromanagement. And I went to their competitor. I got out of a, an NDA. A lot of people don't realize they can get out of an NDA, but I did it twice. <laughs> okay. So I guess it goes back to that negotiation. That's over a barrier, guys. <laughs> Correct. Exactly right. So um, I left uh, there to go to another company where the, the market was basically larger companies. So it's, it's, uh, it's a health benefits SaaS platform that offers benefits to um, employees. You know, so if you have a company and let's say you have 50 people, you want to offer um, health benefits, finance, financial benefits, whatever to your employees and you, you use a platform. Sure, so sure. the first one was a platform. The second one was a platform for larger companies. And I actually moved, I negotiated my way into a product management job with a higher salary, even though I wasn't working in between. So again, negotiation, leave your baggage at the door. It doesn't matter what you're going through, just go in knowing your value. And that's so, it. Uh, so, I mean, if we're listening to your story, you, uh, you start out in neuroscience, you move over into law, then you're in, you know, hedge funds and finance. Now you're over in tech, uh, which pulls a little bit on kind of uh, juicy juice tech experience. Uh, <laughs> yep. You know, so you're just going from all of these different places that that you don't have experience in. Is there any part of you in those moments that thinks like, "Holy crap, I'm way over my head. What am I doing?" <laughs> oh yeah, quite a lot, quite a lot. Believe me, um, you know. And again, this so, is with everyone's full knowledge, right? They, they hired me. 
Yeah. Well, so, I mean, how do you deal with that in a moment where you realize, I don't know finance, I don't know accounting, I don't know whatever it is that you're getting into. What do you do in those moments that that is different than somebody who would say, I'm not even going to touch it because I don't know it? Well, you know, there's there's something to be said for not touching something, you know, but in my case... You know, I, I had to – several things moving me, right? One is I, I want to learn as much as I can. That's always been my personality, right? I want to learn the lexicon of the industry. I want to understand how things actually work, right? So but taking a step back from this entire crazy, you know, set of transitions, I've approached my career by necessity as a set of apprenticeships. You know, I know that we don't hmm. – you know, a lot of us don't really see the workplace as – somewhere we can do an anymore. That's been my approach. And I've, I've picked up both the good in terms of what to do well and, you know, when I have my own company, how am I going to treat people and all the, you know, the technology, how do I build it? How do I bring the right advisors, investors, and so on? All of that I learned from those different experiences. And I also learned how not to manage people and how not to build products, right? So when you approach things from that kind of remove you see yourself as going through this set of experiences in order to one day build your own company, which is exactly what I've done. This, this uh, master that's talking to something. Do you, uh, do you know, uh, Jeremy Slate? Are you familiar with him at all? I do. Okay. So I, do. So I had him on uh, a little while ago and he mentioned the same kind of idea about apprenticeship. And it is interesting in the corporate world, how we, um, <clears throat> we make people prove themselves before putting them into a role mm-hmm which is just this kind of contradiction because we need people to stretch themselves in order to be ready for the role. And so I do think there's some, some merit to this idea of apprenticeship, whether it's self-imposed apprenticeship or whether it's really intentional apprenticeship within an organization that gives people the room that you had, which was self-imposed, but the room to grow and learn and experiment and fail and practice, uh, you know, in order to get into those positions of leadership and autonomy. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's a, again, it's not a business model that's for everyone. I don't know if I would recommend it, you know, living with two kids in New York city and a quarter million dollars of <laughs> law school debt. But sure. that said, I really think that especially for millennials, anyway, the, the economy is very fluid. Most people don't stay more than 18 months to you know, two years in a job. Anyway, that's already de facto how things work. If you take ownership and you say, okay, I'm here for you know 18 months, two years, maybe three, what am I learning? What are the skills I need to pick up in order to go start my own company afterwards? That's a very different animal. And you have ownership, you have that buyer's mentality, and then you also build a network around that you need to build that company, you create connections, you learn how things really work, and maybe you attract you know a couple of people to go work with you. That's that's a very different animal from just like whoa, cool tech startup, man. Yeah, 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 bro. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so you did that. I mean, right? I mean, that was your next your next step. You were doing this, uh, you know, these kind of self imposed apprenticeships with mm-hmm. uh, with the goal or desire to start your own. Exactly. And after so, so tell us about that. <clears throat> so after the third um, health tech startup, again. Um, going from finance and operations to doing product management and strategic partnerships to a third place where I was the director of special projects. And that kind of sounds cryptic. It's uh, everything involving uh, business development um, and uh, investor relations, fundraising, elements of product management, hiring an HR, which actually in some ways is my favorite thing, and 
the focus for my consulting for Fortune 500. Right? Because at some point, you start seeing patterns among the right fit and, and the wrong fit, right? What goes in each bucket for what reasons? And for millennials, this is something that I think about a lot and I write you know, for Forbes and elsewhere about a lot of Fortune 500 corporations and startups as well have a big problem with understanding the millennial mindset. And a lot of that mindset does involve this very short tenure and you know, they call in millennials uh, flaky and entitled and you, know, you name uh, the way we're maligned. So my whole point is also being a millennial, someone who's been through all those experiences and also hired for startups, right? So having a 360 degree view on each candidate, what are they here to do? How do we figure out what what is the best way to develop them into leaders and great managers and so on and so forth? That's that's really become the focus of um, what I do on the consulting side. And it's, it's tough. Most people who are Gen X and Boomer HR leaders or learning and development leaders, they are just kind of content with using existing platforms and the same wrong-headed ways of thinking. And that's where someone like myself comes in. I'm not just a, you know, a guru, a talking head. I've actually been through yeah. it and even not long ago. Well, I think that does matter a lot, especially in that space, is uh, really being able to know what it's like to not just consult somebody on decisions, but to make executive decisions yourself and have to live with those. Um, So you and I share something similar in that space, you know, in that when I'm talking to clients, you know, I run an organization that has a couple dozen employees and I've got another organization that contracts with a couple dozen more. And, uh, and so I know firsthand, not just what I'm consulting on, but what it's like the next day to wake up and have to live with those decisions that are being made. Yep. And that's, that's an important, that's an important aspect. Mm -hmm. So tell us about uh, how's business going at this point. Thank God, thank God. You know, um, yeah, <laughs> it's it's not always been easy. Actually, about um, two months after I started doing uh, this full time between the career coaching and uh, you know startup advising, uh, my little kid was diagnosed with cancer, which which was you know you can imagine. It's oh my gosh, it's a parent. Yeah, but you know, um, fortunately in my life, p- part of the reason that I've been able to get through all these crazy ups and downs is, you know, my faith. It's something that's grown much stronger with time. And, you know, that really gets you through a lot of, a lot of different things, right? You also have to execute constantly. And again, that whole negotiation mindset, you have to find the best care. You have to find the best conditions, you know, babysitter or, you know, finding the ideal client. It's, it's all the same kind of process. So having built up the mindset over time and having faith really is what I think got me and my wife through this process. Because sometimes you don't even you don't even understand the craziness that you're going through. Meaning, you know, you're going to the uh, the kids' floor in you know Memorial Sloan Kettering, and after one trip, my wife was like, "I'm really sorry. I, I just I physically cannot. I can't. I can't come with you. You're going to have to take your kid, you know, to blood tests." So you know that puts things in perspective. Mm-hmm. It also just makes you that much more efficient. I mean, as a parent already, this is <laughs> the case. Um, it just, it really makes you get to the point much faster, right? And we're, we're talking about setting goals for your revenue or finding ideal clients or whatever it is. Things really become starkly clear. There's no more of this kind of wandering and being unclear on who I am and who am I meant to serve. All those things come into sharp relief. And um, that's that's been a really, really you know, transformative journey for me as an entrepreneur and as a, as a father and, and husband. 
of business. Business is good, Does, you know, not, yeah, can, not just display, but I would say because of that. It's, it's maybe not the usual way of thinking about this, but for me, it really is like that. I've, I've been able to succeed in my business because I've gone through that craziness plus everything. Yeah, I mean, that's a, such a great way to look at it that sometimes we look at these really difficult situations that get presented in our lives and we, you know, we see them for all of the challenges that they present and the difficulties that they present. But, you know, last podcast, I had a gentleman by the name of uh, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones who grew up in poverty in the UK. Um, and, you know, he credited those experiences, those really difficult experiences for why he reached the point that he did um, in his career and in being successful. And I think it's really important. That, I think the important piece is not just seeing that in hindsight, you know, a lot of us can look in hindsight and say, oh, wow, that was really useful or beneficial. But the ability to actually see in the moment that there's going to be something good that comes out of this, there's going to be something that, um, you know, we can learn from this and, and take from this to apply or help other people or help us in our real big goals that we're going after. Yeah, and I think um, it's very important. This is the core of my work, right? Between language and psychology, it's really all about storytelling. For me, oh, yeah. once I realized that my my whole point is to help others tell their story to create opportunity, it's to learn the language of psychology to be able to do that, then it's much easier to go and help a client. You know, like I'll give you a very short example. One of my clients is in investment banking, and uh, you know, looks just like a regular white guy from Upper West Side. And we're talking, talking, and after you know, forty-five minutes, he's like, "Oh, I don't know if I mentioned my my mom is black." I'm like, Are you, wow, like I would have never known that. So, uh. all right, that's that's totally something I would not have expected. That clearly figures into his psychology and the way he operates. And then he's yeah. like, "Oh yeah, and I forgot to mention uh, when I was born, I could only eat five foods." Like, are you kidding me? This is absolute gold. You know, you don't yeah. understand what you're sitting on. So I told him, I said, right there, you're someone who's been hiding in plain sight your whole life. He's like, oh my God, you just, you just somehow you, you touched a nerve. That's, that's it. It's, you know, the guy's incredibly, not just intelligent, but astute. He's an excellent listener and leader, but from behind the scenes, he's never wants to be at the front. And in, in that 90 minutes, that's, you know, for me, that's the magic I do. That's that's why I do this work because it helps me to do the things that I love the most, which is you know teach language and psychology, but also investigate to get down to the root of a problem. That's maybe the mindset from science, right? And and then to create something out of that, whether it's a, a new career opportunity or a new business, and that's the entrepreneurial side. So, in in essence, what I do is very much a combination of everything else that I've done in terms of careers. And helping people see the value in their story is the key to what I do. And everybody has very valuable things in their story, challenges, difficulties, whatever. They don't they don't even have to be that. It could be just, you know, what kinds of games did you play as a kid? Was it more word games or strategy or role playing or whatever? And often that is the key to what this person needs to be doing as their life mission. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great point to, to kind of wrap up on is the power of storytelling. And I think, you know, the way we tell our own story will dictate the actions we choose to take. I also think the way we tell stories about experiences 
dictate how we perceive those and react to them. So if I tell a story about an experience that positions me as a victim, then I react as a victim. But if I tell the story about the experience that positions me as having ownership, something that you talked about earlier mm -hmm. in that situation, then I take control of it. If I tell a story about myself that says, um, you know, I'm destined for failure and I don't have anything unique about me, well, then I behave like that. Whereas if I recognize those unique pieces of my story and I tell that story about my own uniqueness and my power to uh, impact the environment around me, then I push to do that. And so I think that's a, a wonderful principle to really wrap up on is the power of telling your own story and also recognizing what story are you telling about those around you that impacts your um, your perception of them and your behavior towards exactly. them. Exactly. It's just the key to my whole life if you think about it. I love it. Uh, well, Yuri, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for sharing what an incredible story you've had. I love the breadth of experience you've gone through that's gotten you to this point. Um, if people want to reach out and find you um, or check out your services, where should my, they go? My company website is masterthetalk.com. And uh, you can email me directly. Actually, that's always easier. It's Yuri, Y-U-R-I, at masterthetalk.com. Awesome. And, and we'll include those links in the description so people have access to them. Anything else you'd like uh, to tell people or leave them with right before we close up? I think um, the four pillars that I mentioned, life mission, values, outcomes, and role. In every part of my work, regardless whether it's for Fortune 500 executives or whether it's for entrepreneurs, for me, that's the bedrock of my work because I know that you know millions of people are walking around not clear on who they are and where they're meant to go. So I, I strongly urge everyone who's listening to go through that process up front. It'll save you a lot of confusion and heartache and you know a lot of dead ends that you can simply avoid by doing this now. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Yuri. And for those listening, that is the Art of Strategic Reaction. Thank you so much, Kyle.